Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what The Matrix Reloaded did for architects. I'm Seb Patrick and joining me to help make sense of the comics that very heavily inspired the movies are... James Hunt. And Glenn Napier. Yes, so uh, unusual one this time in that we don't have Joe available, uh, probably because he was intelligent enough not to want to sit in front of a computer and microphone recording a podcast on the hottest day of the year. Uh, so I'm hosting and we have a special guest for this episode, a first time guest. So hello to Claire, if you would like to tell us a bit about yourself, what you do, where we can find you doing that. Um, yes, I am a very special guest. I'm a <laughs> critic of comics. Um, I'm also an editor of comics. Um, I do the one in various places and the other currently on Kickstarter, um, Bun and Tea Magazine, comic serials. Look us up. It's really good. And we've got you on to discuss uh, the Wachowski's 1999 film, The Matrix. Um, have you sort of got any, are you sort of, do you have a particular attachment to that? I sort of, we wanted to find people who I'd seen sort of discussing it recently because it got re-released in the cinemas recently. And you were one of those people talking about it in connection to comics, which we'll, we'll get to. Uh, is it something that you have a particular interest in fondness for or have I completely barked up the wrong tree with it? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me if I'd seen it then. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I did have a strong fondness for it. Um, it's it's subsequently waned, but I can I can still see why I took to it the way that I did. Um, I first saw it when my friend from school, um, who when we we're about fourteen, fifteen, she got really into you know cinema and film, um, and she started lending me movies because I'm always happy to hear people get nerdy, and um, I guess I'm also kind of a film person. I just I hadn't found my niche at that time. Um, so she lent me these three movies, um, Reservoir Dogs, The City of Lost Children, and The Matrix. Um, and I had to give them back to her at a certain date because she needed to reuse the VHS tapes to tape the next <laughs> late night stuff. Um, and I hadn't finished. I'd seen Reservoir Dogs and The City of Lost Children. I hadn't watched The Matrix yet and I had to give it back the next day. So I was trying, trying to cram it in. And then my mum was like, don't you have homework? Shouldn't you go to bed? And I was like, mum! I'm trying to watch The Matrix, but she didn't understand. <laughs> so um, that may have been something to do with why I made it so many, so much of uh, one of my films just out of peak. But um, yeah, I, I, I bought my own VHS copy. I don't remember buying it, but I have it still. So yeah. <laughs> is it the one that has the... Um, is it the one that's got like the accent varnish on the front? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I remember getting that for... Um, I got it for Christmas after the, the year it came out because I somehow missed it in the cinemas and, and everyone was like, you have to watch this film. So I was like, okay, I got it for Christmas. I remember watching it on Christmas Day. <laughs> Me and my brother loved it and the rest of our family were just like... We don't understand a second of this movie. Good times. <laughs> well, we'll get into The Matrix in a bit more detail a bit later in the episode, but I think that was a nice way to get a bit of a guest introduction there. But before we do, uh, I'm going to ask James and Claire to explain to me something that I don't know about Krakoa. Okay. <laughs> like anything, or are you going to pick something? No, just, just just tell me something that I might not know about it. It's it's topically relevant in comics this week, which we'll come to. Uh, but what what is interesting that I might not know about it? Um, Bear in mind, James will tell you, I don't know a lot about the X-Men. So It's really hard to pick something interesting about Krakoa. I guess to start <laughs> with 
the basics, do you know that Krakoa is a living island? I knew it was an island. I didn't know it was a living island. Yeah, it's so. alive. It's there a- you go. Job done. Yeah, it's a, it's a mutant island. <laughs> See, I, ju- I, I think I've heard it described as a mutant island, but I just thought that meant it was an island for mutants. Mm, no, it, it, it is also an island which is a mutant. Um, it, yeah, it is okay. alive, it has a personality, and sometimes it tries to eat people, which yeah. is... Uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll know, I think, the uh, second Genesis big X-Men relaunch cover giant size course, x-men yes um yeah they as i recall were called up by charles xavier because the regular x-men had been at by krakoa and they had to go fetch them <laughs> i think that's what happened um that's very very early on so oh and of course and now that i remember i think i did read that it's the subject of that that classic alan moore story krakoa doesn't socialize <laughs> Good joke, <laughs> this, my thing about Krakoa is that he killed the original second generation of X-Men. All of them. All except Vulcan. Well, if you original ever read the, uh... is, a, is a, a term that I might contend. Yeah. <laughs> please. The continuity insert second generation of X-Men, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of that story, to be honest, and I was exceedingly glad to see Vulcan coming back, if you'll excuse the sarcasm. To explain that to anyone who is not aware, um, the... The second Genesis happened in in 1976, as I said. A retcon in 2006, five, I don't know, I'm guessing, um, suggested uh, that the first team of X-Men got it by Krakoa, yes. Then another team was gathered, and they went and they also got it, but they died. And then the other team, who we all know as the new X-Men, did as we know that they did, and so on. (laughs) Not terribly original, but... It worked for some. <laughs> I like the idea of being part of the second group who go to the island after the first group got <laughs> by the island. But they didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> the C the <sea> team. <laughs> so, I mean, well, from the look of it, the X-Men have a friendlier relationship with Krakoa now because it's the setting for uh, the major part of House of X, issue one. House of X being the new X-Men relaunch miniseries or one of two miniseries that's come in from writer Jonathan Hickman. Um, first issue came out this week. There's been a lot of talk about it. Um, and also, there's, you may gather, not a lot of news for us to cover on the podcast this week because I don't know if you noticed, but a few days ago we put out, well, a few days ago as we record this, we put out a two and a half hour SDCC news minisode. And for some reason, people don't put out a lot of additional news in the aftermath of SDCC. I don't know why. Um, so we've had some people asking us on Twitter anyway to talk about comics because uh, I don't think we talked about recent comics in detail for a little while, kind of stuff that we're reading. And without Joe here, uh, it's a really good opportunity for us to recommend <laughs> things to him because he'll actually have to listen to this one because he's not I thought you were. Ga- I thought you were going to say there's <laughs> no one to stop us then. Well, also there's no one to stop us. No, I mean, Joe, well, no, Joe used to like a recommendation. I think I think he's bored of us recommending comics to him now. It's It's been... Because we keep years, telling him to read Giant Days. <laughs> Yeah. Well, until he reads Giant Days, we'll keep bloody recommending it. Um, Speaking of Giant Days, let's start with that, because it's finishing soon, and that's really sad, isn't it? It's sad, but, you know, all things must change. I'm I'm very much a proponent of, like, don't go out on top, run it into the ground so that once you're gone, (laughs) no one's sad. The thing is, is that I don't think they're capable of running it into the ground. I'd at least like to see them try and just spend, like, 30 years doing it and, and never putting out a bad issue yeah i thought that about genshiken which was one of my favorite mangas and then by the time they ran it into the ground i was like yeah probably time to stop 
I think doing that with Giant Days would be contrary to the premise. I mean, Giant Days are specifically the university period, and you can only sustain that for so long without... I mean, Susan has another year because she's a medical student, but you'd have to keep the others back. You'd have to have them as grad students and so on. And it, it just, it would it would get messy otherwise. Like, drawing out eternal youth doesn't lead to consistent comics. <laughs> X-Men, for example. Um, <laughs> know when to go and go. Yeah, I'm Maybe we could get the time-displaced version of the Giant Days characters from three years ago turning up in the present day <laughs> and not knowing what bottled water is. Well, I mean, for that, just dip back into scary go round, right? Well, that that's I mean, that's because I think obviously an interesting thing with Giant Days, and I, I we may have talked about this before, but I'm one of the people who came to it like not having read any of the rest of the Allison verse stuff beforehand. So characters turn up in Giant Days, and I don't realise that they're from Scary Go Round mm-hmm. and and things like that. Uh, I've I've started to now because I've read more of it, but bearing in mind that these characters come from well sort of come from a, like a wider um, set of characters and a wider world do you expect that this will be the end of us being told stories of these characters by john allison and possibly slash hopefully max sarin do you think they might do something else with the characters in future or do you think they'll they'll wrap this up and that'll be all that we'll ever need from them i think it's hard to say um i think john has said that he doesn't plan or that he doesn't currently have any more plans but but people lie about things like that when they don't want to give away their plans. <laughs> they just happen, don't they? I mean, people lie, but they also just... Ideas occur. After he finished scaring around the first time, he kept coming up with stories for Shelley um, and braiding her into the new landscape. Um, like Murder, She Writes with uh, Shelley and Lottie from Bad Machinery. Um, I don't. I mean, they'd have to occur again, wouldn't they? They're 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 mm. so much. They've been there for so long, and he writes them so well. I mean, I I often compare him to Chris Claremont, um, just because of the scope of his work and the sustained dramatic quality, and that you can't keep him away from X Men. That guy, so just because he he knows them so well, and I I don't. I don't know that it would be any different for John Allison. I, I can't see why it would or should be. Hmm. But, you know, I wouldn't want to push him too much either. Give the poor man a rest. <laughs> we can only hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if if we haven't made it clear enough many, many times, it's the best thing in comics and everyone should be reading it and people who aren't deserve extreme censure, by which I mean Joe. Um, I mean, just... Swinging, swinging back then to that that recent thing from this week, just very quickly, have you both read House of X? Have do you have any particular thoughts on it? Uh, I have, but I'll let Claire go first. I haven't, no. Um, and uh, well. honestly, I don't plan to because for me, the X Men ended in nineteen ninety four. Um, I've I've, <laughs> I've spoken about this, before, I've written about it before, but um, for me, with this kind of eternal property, having a cut off point is important for my own sense of well being, like my own attachment. It, Eternal attachment to something that is controlled by so many differing parties is just not good for my happiness. Um, I, <laughs> that, that is it, it upsettingly sounds, healthy. <laughs> I know. Um, it, it sounds like I'm still interested in the craft of superheroes and of the X-Men specifically because they 
Well, I mean, it's it's kind of the same, like Claremont or like John Allison. I I've, I haven't been telling these stories, but I've been reading them for so long, and I know them so well, and I know the voices when they're right, and so on. It's hard not to be sort of interested, but it's also hard to actually be interested, if you see what I mean. <laughs> I've definitely had that feeling before <laughs> about many different comics. Mm. Mostly Daredevil, actually. That's the one where I, I remember when after the... Uh, I, I say Bendis run, but it was Bendis and Brubaker, wasn't it? And mm. then who followed that? Andy Diggle? It's Diggle after Brubaker. Yeah. Yeah. By the time that finished, I was like, mm, I'm just going to leave Daredevil alone for a bit. Mm. Yeah. It, it definitely reached that point where, yeah, it was sort of... You can keep on telling stories, and people always will, but um, are, are you going to get that again? And, and what new is going to be said? Yeah. Um, and I think I think there are characters that there's always the potential to find something new with. Certainly. And I think, well, you know, uh, the MCU shows us that you can take some of the basic premises of, of Marvel characters and, and, you know, do something in a different direction. I am finding even, yeah, with a lot of superhero characters that I follow now... Um, after after the initial flurry of a good new creative run starting where you think, oh, this is good and exciting and I'm enjoying the art and I'm enjoying the storytelling and this is well written and enjoyable. And then after sort of maybe five or ten issues of something, you're thinking, well, this is just kind of, this is just going on and just being there mm. because it's there, really. Mm. Um, and I, I'm, I'm finding that I'm getting excited about things early on and then dropping off them maybe a lot quicker than I used to. I think if they published X-Men as, I don't want to say graphic novels because that's a murky term, but if they, if this new Hickman um, concept came in a large enough chunk that I could read it all at once and feel like I've actually been told a story rather than that I'm being strung along while a story <laughs> is eventually told, um, which is, like that sounds like an indictment of the serial form. It's not. It's specific to the x-men as a serial i think that it's run out as a serial for me at least as a reader like i said the x-men ended for in 1994 for me and that that's true but i still i've read plenty of x-men comics after that and some of them are very good um like ecstatics um or morrison's new x-men but i didn't read those once a month for months and months i read them in collections in collected formats um when there was enough of them to feel like not only that it's going somewhere, but that it has an internal structure that makes it more than um, here's your monthly dose of new canon lore. Like I, it needs to feel like literature more than it feels like the new rules to me for enjoyment that, to happen. Yeah. That's an interesting point because I felt similarly about Hickman's uh, Avengers run, which is that I I read a bit of it and I thought, well, this is fine. Mm. But when I eventually sat down and read the whole thing in one go, it you know the the sort of yeah. more literary themes were a lot easier to find in it because it was all there. Yeah, and yeah. you know I wasn't wasn't waiting a month between chapters and forgetting half of what had happened. Mm. So yeah, I can I can understand that definitely. Do you think that's I mean. How do you feel then about that first issue of House of X? Bearing in mind that, yeah, you know, um, it's the first issue of a Hickman thing. It's been, I think, my it's been very touted as you know, here starts and here is the first issue of this massive epochal moment in X Men. I think you know they've they've said that like there have been four previous big moments in X Men, and this is the fifth uh, after Morrison as the fourth. Um, 
and I don't know if you got the sense that I did that it doesn't feel that way from this issue, but then is it a case of we shouldn't necessarily be judging it on this first issue? Yeah, I mean, I can I can see, you know, I can see the craft of it and that not least because they, in the digital version, they included this original script with a bunch of redacted bits that sort of spell out where the mysteries are. And I sort of, mm, I sort of cheating. felt like that might have been, I know, I feel like that might have been deliberate to say like, hey, don't worry, there is stuff going on under the surface here because look, we've redacted all this stuff that is going to be revealed later. So what is, for, for, for those who, without kind of spoiling too much, what, what's the big, what, what feels like is being shaken up by this? Why, why? What 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 does it look like Hickman's coming in and doing with it that could make it interesting? Yeah, so the the altered premise, I guess, is that Professor Xavier and or who the person purporting to be Professor Xavier and the <laughs> the X Men by extension or mutants have sort of abandoned this kind of dream of coexistence and are attempting to set the terms of mutant existence kind of not aggressively, but in a sort of <sighs> they are they're no longer reacting to humans their their attitude is hey we've got our homeland and we're setting setting up outreach centers in the human world and if you want to get on board great and if you don't tough because we're here anyway it's no longer like protecting a world that hates and fears them it's sort of disregarding a world that hates and fears them I was going to say coexisting with, but yeah, disregarding <laughs> it. <laughs> well, there's an, there's an interesting scene where Magneto proclaims that uh, mutants are now humanity's new gods, and he's tired of pretending otherwise, which is an interesting character moment. It sounds mm. like he's been reading comics, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm cautiously optimistic for where it's going, having read a lot of bad X-Men comics. Uh, yeah, I didn't feel that big sea change that was necessarily promised. Do you think that's something to do with the visuals? Because not to bag on the artist, I'm not sure who's in charge, who's drawing. Um, and I'm not saying that they're bad at all, because um, I've seen plenty of you know panels and stuff on Twitter. But um, the, well, with Morrison's X-Men, we, we call it Morrison's X-Men, but it's just as much Quietly's X-Men. Um, mm. And with the Ecstatics, Milligan was very different as a scripter, but he was as accompanied by Mike Allred and Laura Allred, who were very different visually. It was like the whole package was changed. You you couldn't deny that it was a new mm-hmm. like button. And House of X doesn't look new in that way to me. I mean, that has something that has something to do with the fact that they revived old costumes, but it also has something to do with the actual like lines themselves and the coloring techniques themselves it looks the same as last month yeah it does it does look very conventional you're right mm. i mean even on hickman's previous stuff you've usually had like esad ribich has done a lot of his stuff with him didn't he and again it's that's it's as much a part of creating that really distinctive feel and i noticed i don't know who the letterer is but hickman's stuff hickman's marvel stuff always seems to have the same letterer <laughs> always has sentence very- case yeah, yeah. It's like, did he pick that up from working on Ultimates? Um, <laughs> like he picked up the Maker, um, but who also possibly appears to be in this issue as Professor Xavier. But I think you're supposed to think that. Um, but yeah, it's just the, so the, I mean, the, there is definitely an aesthetic to Hickman in inverted commas' work because yeah, there are usually people working with him who you expect to see across that stuff. Mm. And yeah, I certainly think. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the art in this, and I actually I can't remember the artist's name, which is. Uh, it's uh, Pepe Larez. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that name before. I look, I read it, and I thought this is pretty decent art. Mm. Um, there's certainly nothing wrong with it. 
Um, but also, yeah, it's there's there's nothing that sort of the art doesn't break out in any way. Yeah, exactly. Um, it is it's conventional superhero artist, but not a conventional superhero book. So there mm. is that sort of tension there. I mean, it's 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 better than getting Grant Morrison to do a Batman book and then putting Tony Daniel on it for the pivotal art, <laughs> but you know, or putting some of the artists who they put on Grant Morrison's X Men run that weren't Frank Quitely, um, one one of whom we don't talk about now. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, um, yeah, moving swiftly onward. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I'm basically giving you the opportunity here to talk about anything else that's recent and interesting that you might want to. You've put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that James isn't reading anything. I read a few things, but I, I tend to go back and pick things up in bulk when they're on sale, to be honest. So, <laughs> so I can read them all in one go. <laughs> Have you read the first issue, or either of you, of Fraction and Lieber's Jimmy Olsen? Because no. that's a first issue, and that's a first issue that's very good at being first issue I don't read DC Comics. Well, actually, that's not true, but um, I read Female Furies, but that's because it had a hook. Um, I don't like the world, if you see what I mean. Like, I don't feel at home in, in the DC universe. It doesn't feel friendly to me, so I don't tend to read. Um, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I haven't read nothing, but I definitely am not inclined towards grabbing whatever if there's nothing else yeah. on the shelf <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll pick it I'm up i'm extremely but... similar in that regard <laughs> uh, well i will talk briefly about it because Please it's really do. good and actually there's there's been two very good offshoots uh or at least first issues of offshoots from the superman books the superman books are kind of in a they in a place at the moment because they've got tied into an event that DC are doing or that rather that Bendis at DC is doing that's very based around the espionage side of DC um which is good because it's meant that actually a lot of good characters are getting brought up and played with so um uh, um Manhunter is back and I, like I haven't seen her in a comic for a while um and the question has popped up and Tied to all of this, Greg Rooker is uh, writing a Lois Lane twelve-issue series, and the first issue of that was excellent. Um, I sort of, I've lost track of the number of times that Greg Rooker's supposed to have been not writing for DC anymore, <laughs> but then comes back again. Uh, but I am happy to see him doing so, and it's a it's a good choice of character alongside. But then this, yeah, this Jimmy Olsen book, which is definitely one of the best fraction things I've read in a while. Um, I'm pairing him up with Steve Lieber, um, who like it's it's nice to read a Steve Lieber comic that isn't written by Nick Spencer, um, and sort of just to enjoy it fully on the level of like not being an Spencer comic, um, and it's really interestingly structured in that it's because it's Jimmy Olsen and it is literally the book is called Superman's Pal Jimmy Olsen, um, but it's been structured like it's a Silver Age issue, so it's a load of short stories that all have titles and that are all supposedly vignettes, but actually throughout the issue, it's just one long story. Mm. And it's not even that, like, they don't even jump around very much. Like, they literally just directly lead into one another, but each chapter, essentially, is presented with a new title card as a new story. Um, and it's just really kind of, as you would hope from Fraction when he's in good mode, it's just really, like, relentlessly good fun. Mm. Um so. It's interesting that they're harking back to the Silver Age, which basically no current reader would have been alive to read. True, but I mean, with Jimmy Olsen, where else do you go? <laughs> it's sort of, yeah. you know, there isn't kind of really anywhere else that you can uh, 
that you can draw from in terms of if you're going to do a Jimmy Olsen thing that draws some kind of inspiration from the past, then um, you know there isn't really anything else. But um, I've I've just been af- after we talked about it on um, the SDCC episode, I just read through the entirety of Hawkeye again. Um, which is interesting because I I don't think I ever went back and reread it after it came out so slowly. I, I've never I don't think I've just gone back and read it in that is it like twenty something issue chunk, um, just completely start to finish. So it was that was an interesting experience because you come across the individual issues that came out when they actually when everything was getting delayed and they had to insert something. I'd forgotten that they published one of the Kate issues. They they published the actual numbered issues out of sequence on Hawkeye. I think it was like issue seventeen came out before issue sixteen, so there <laughs> were like two Kate issues back to back because I think David Ayer was being held up on the um, on the Clint stuff. But anyway, the point is, so I was, I was just rereading that like at the same time as this Jimmy Olsen thing coming out, and actually it's very much it's that Matt Fraction doing this essentially. So that's that's good to see because you don't always get that Matt Fraction on superhero stuff. So. Um, I very much, yeah, recommend that. I mean, it's only based on one issue, which is as we were saying about it. But it's, <laughs> yeah, but it, I'll know, see you again in three issues time. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, to come back to that thing, and I think it's, I think it's a conversation we've had before that you know sometimes, um, serialized things aren't not not just comics, but also TV shows, as we've talked about, um, don't always work as well as serialized things as they should. Mm. And it's always really nice when you read something that is very obviously. Uh, you know, a single issue object that is part of a wider whole, but absolutely works in its own right as a single issue. So, much like those Hawkeye issues did. It does sound creative, which is yes. to be valued. <laughs> it has ideas. It definitely has ideas and weirdness <laughs> and uh, and just a sense of fun, which, you know, isn't always a given <laughs> in superhero stuff these days. So... Yeah. No giant days though, is it? <laughs> no, nothing is giant days. That's the I mean that it is true that sort of anything that I could praise anything else for, whether it's comedy, drama, character, art, storytelling, pacing, <laughs> anything, like giant days will be doing that probably better than anything else that I'm That's praising. sort of how I feel about TV and Buffy, because like everything I watch I'm like, mm, it's okay, but it's no Buffy. Have you been reading the Buffy comics? I've not been reading the rebooted mm. comic. I'm interested in it though, having seen a few of the covers and I'm like, ooh, Vampire Xander looks interesting. Yeah, it's it's quite good. I'm enjoying it. Okay. I prefer in, in contrast, um I do prefer it as a monthly read. Um I had to buy the first four in trade because that's all they had in the shop. And Reading it all at once didn't feel as good as it did when I read the first issue and then had to wait, um, <laughs> because I think because it's so it's it it does a very good job of being a reboot of being a product that is aware of everything that happened in the original and it's mm-hmm. very it is creative it's um it's flexible with the notes that it's reusing, but um. There are enough of them that it's very satisfying. Um, so it's nice. Too much at once is too much. It feels like um, the opposite of growth. But once a month, it's it's good stuff. Really good stuff. Okay, I'll have to go pick it up. I, I kind of got turned off the Buffy comics after the, uh, I think it was season 11, where they were like... Oh, God, well, why? I mean... <laughs> slayers in concentration camps. I was like, mm, is this a good idea? I'm not sure it is. Absolutely not. No, I... I I was similarly unimpressed with all of that nonsense, 
But um, <laughs> there was an interview with the uh, the editor and Jordi uh, Belair, the writer, um, where they spoke about how they they're concentrating. They are primarily being an adaptation. They're not pretending Buffy the show didn't happen. Right. They know that the people who are reading it probably already saw the show. And so because of that, they can use not exactly coded storytelling, but there is a lot of awareness of what you are also aware of. Mm. It's very effective. Okay. I I like when things can play with your expectations like yes. that. It's sort of if you have a preconception and expectation based on your previous experience of something. Yeah. And the makers of it know that, then they can really play with that. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it, it's why the um, we've talked about it so much, but it's why the vulture reveal in Homecoming was so good <laughs> because that directly strikes at the fact that if you know anything about Spider Man, you know what Liz's surname is supposed to be, and you know that it's not the same as the vulture's surname. Um, so. Yeah, I always like to see things doing that. Mm. Very true. So, are we, are we ready to move on? <laughs> I'm ready. Okay, so there isn't anything else interesting going on in comics at the moment. That's what you're saying. Well, I'm I'm loving webtoons, I must say, but um, I'm writing a column about them, so I can't say too much here. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Where should people read that column? Womenwriteaboutcomics.com. There you go. Got the plug in. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we should move on. Um, as I said, I've already said this is probably going to be a slightly shorter episode than usual, probably because it's so warm. And also, I meant to say at the start, if you can hear the noises of fans in the background, we will have tried to remove them. Um, but it's seriously, it's too hot to sit here in a room and not have a fan on. So I know I've got one and I know James has got one. So we'll, we'll try and remove them. But if we haven't successfully removed them and you're having to hear a low hum on the episode, sorry, but it won't be there on the next one. Uh, we are aware of it it's not just us being rubbish uh but yes let's move on then to our spoiler filled discussion of the wachowski's 1999 film the matrix uh before we do let's take a break to listen to the trailer for the film hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com subtle results still you but with fewer lines Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, Headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Have 
you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? It's the question that drives us, Neo. What is the Matrix? It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. You are a slave born into a prison for your mind. The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. Try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague. And we are the cure. So you're here to save the world. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through. It seems that you've been living two lives. I've seen an agent punch through a concrete wall. Men have emptied entire clips of them and hit nothing but air. Everyone who has fought an agent has died. But where they have failed, you will succeed. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. No one has ever done anything like this. That's why it's going to work. Mr. Anders. What are you trying to tell me? That I can dodge bullets? No, Neo. Trying to tell you that when you're ready, you won't have to. Okay, so that was the trailer for The Matrix, the 1999 film that was the second film written and directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski, um, which sort of, this is one where I'm interested in whether kind of younger listeners, by which I mean people who weren't in their mid to late teens when it came out, maybe don't to me. necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> maybe don't necessarily appreciate the the impact that this had when it came out because I think I know I've, I've I've had conversations with people about this film where they they recognize what it is but do kind of almost look on it with a sort of um well it's that it's that quite old and dated sci-fi film from the late 90s and it is worth saying that it is possibly one of the most 90s artifacts that you could possibly imagine um but I really this film came out, so it came out in the US in March 1999. I'm not sure exactly when the UK release date was, but I have a feeling it was around the summer. Um, sort of pretty much, well, pretty much around now because it's getting a 20th anniversary re-release now. And it really was just like a a bolt from the blue because it was, you know, like, I mean, unless you, unless you happen to have seen Bound, which, you know, I'm not sure many teenagers then would have done, um, you know, these directors had kind of almost come from nowhere and arrived with this like fully formed and and kind of an incredibly sort of put together and fully formed sci-fi concept and world that just had this immediate impact on pop culture and just like just added so much to the vernacular and to the way that we kind of think about sci-fi action movies <laughs> i do i I sort of want to backpedal on that slightly. <laughs> well, I think they, I'm not saying that it's without precedent. Well, they popularized a lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it was taken from sort of Eastern cinema. Uh, well, Certainly, yeah. they they copied a lot of the visual language from like anime and 
you know cyberpunk anime specifically so it's not like there was no precedent it certainly brought it to a to a much bigger audience than had previously found it but despite that i think that you i think you can say for a lot of it there was no precedent in context because while they did um take a lot from asian martial arts movies and they did take noticeable influence from anime the matrix still doesn't really look like a Hong Kong movie or an anime. True. Like it doesn't if you look if you watch the movie, you're not actually thinking most of the time, maybe like ninety ninety five percent of the time for me, I'm not thinking, oh, that looks like whatever anime that I know that they drew from. Or I'm not thinking that looks like whatever movie that I know that they drew from. Like th- visually, when when like purely as a pair of eyeballs in the in a cinema, it doesn't really look like anything like vague hints of terminator 2ishness vague like the there's a subway scene which reminds me of crocodile dundee 2 but <laughs> the like it, it it takes from a lot but it puts it together in such a new way for like for the format that it takes for the medium it is in it really it is unprecedented and i i think I mean, yeah, it's it's undeniable that it takes from a lot, and yeah, sort of <laughs> where I was I was kind of going with that was that it's, it, I think it's clever in what it draws from, in that it draws from things knowing that the percentage of people seeing this film when it came out who will have been aware of what it was drawing of, drawing on is low, and that's what I mean about kind of about it being a bolt from the blue in the sense mm. of to someone who just had no experience of the. The films, and also, as I say, we'll come to the the comics that are undeniably a huge influence on this. Um, it it does it feels like it's just sprung up completely fresh. And as I say, you know, you're a kind of fifteen, sixteen, seventeen year old, particularly watching this film when it comes out. It kind of opens up this world to you that you weren't necessarily aware of before. Um, and he, you know, in some instances, I think it's it's kind of honest about its influences, and I think there's ways in which it's been criticised for. Um, slightly sort of um, not exactly trying to hide them but you know yeah maybe not being as open and honest about say for example being influenced by the invisibles um. <laughs> I think that it stands as a film that's that's influenced by a lot of stuff I think it stands out um, from uh, what I would what I would call its peer cinema um, like Tarantino stuff and um, Robert Rodriguez stuff um, who have similar pools of influence and similar sort of um not exactly pastiche but like turn up to 11 versions of their influences in that um like i said when i watched the matrix it, it doesn't really remind me of anything um even though i've watched plenty of the same things that the wachowskis were watching before um though i've watched it after um but when when i watch a tarantino film or when i watch like desperado i'm like well, I've seen this 5,000 times because I've seen the same movies that Tarantino has seen. I recognize everything. And because I've seen the anime that's probably influenced by Rodriguez, they, the anime hasn't really changed it because it doesn't need to because it can just look the same because his visual language isn't especially... Like, it was innovative, but it wasn't um, hard to reproduce or like it, it in some way it didn't push as hard as The Matrix because it's easier to reproduce. I think that though... Like, I know that it's correct to acknowledge that The Matrix has a lot of influences and a lot of, like, bold steals, really. Um, (laughs) But I think that the way that it stands out from other movies, which also have 
tons of references and tons of steals and tons of just like full-on yanks um it stands out it's different it it did something that most of them don't do and that deserves more admiration i think than like i think that ad- admiring the way that they made it fresh is more important than like ethically saying oh but they did borrow this from here and there and so on because i i think that so few people managed to actually do that mm. yeah it's it's fair to say that the matrix is sort of aesthetically coherent in a way that that a lot of action cinema especially isn't mm. Um, and part of that is that they they sort of took their influences and integrated them into something you know that that yeah. made sense. It wasn't yeah. just hey, remember this. It was in service of the story they were telling. And and yeah, I think you're right in that sense, definitely. It, it has also achieved that thing as I mentioned before. Of it, you know, it's it's added a lot to the vernacular, and I think that owes a lot to the coherence of kind of its its aesthetic and. Um, it's it, it's language and it's it's concepts as well it's kind of it's 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 very sure of itself and it's very sure mm. of kind of what it's set up and that means that it can kind of it can almost casually throw kind of phraseology and concepts that that actually we kind of when you're watching it and you're you're running along with it you kind of you grab them and you run with it and it means that you come out of the film and sort of you know so immediately after this film the concept of for example referring to deja vu as a glitch in the matrix mm-hmm. uh, you know is just there um you know it's it's a little bit unfortunate obviously what what the idea of red pill has become but you know it's <laughs> it, it does show that what the unfortunate film unfortunate for them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but you know it's sort of again it's it, it, it what it did was create a very identifiable concept in terms of uh you can make a choice between actually understanding the truth of reality or blissfully ignoring it um as i say you know that's not actually <laughs> otherwise give any credit to the to uh the people who've decided that what their reality and what the red pill reality represents um and sorry i had another one and i've forgotten it now <laughs> i was gonna make a point about how in the immediate aftermath of the matrix the you know the the things that it did like the sort of bullet time and waifu and black leather costumes cropped up in a lot of places most notably for this podcast it feels like the reason the x-men turned up in 2000 wearing entirely black leather mm. I'd be amazed if that wasn't like directly cited when they were talking about. Like, I, I've I've got a feeling that I remember seeing articles about the X Men movie when it was being made, and and they would have said, and they're in Matrix esque black leather. There's a stepping stone, kind of. Um, well, sort of. Um, Mutant X. Do you know it? Yes. The TV show. <laughs> we we need to cover that at some point. We really do. <laughs> well, have me back. Um, <laughs> the most hilariously brazen um moment in that absolutely truly dreadful show um (laughs) because mutant x was supposed to be the x-men for tv but it wasn't allowed to be because the x-men tv license was with fox um is it fox i think um so marvel could not do the x-men on television they weren't allowed to because of decisions Mm. made earlier in the decade um, by people who didn't work there anymore. Um, so they made up Mutant X as their clever, clever idea. Basically, <laughs> they bootlegged themselves. And there's there's a moment... That it's, it's just normal people, and they discover they have superpowers, and they get gathered together by John Shea, and um, <laughs> they have a jet, and... 
<laughs> so on. Um, but the the mainish character is this woman who is telepathic. She used to be a shop sales girl, and now she's a mutant ex. Um, and they turn up to a fight, and for usually she wears like horrible two thousand and three ish stuff, like a skirt with an asymmetrical hem, and it's brown, and she's got <laughs> knee high boots, and her hair's flicking out, and you know you can you can picture it. But for literally no reason, she turns up to a fight in a full vinyl black cat suit out of literally nowhere, <laughs> literally nowhere, and um, because she's telepathic. Um, she can sort of do matrixy stuff ish and she suddenly can kick people in the face and it it's just it is completely a pointless pointless ripoff because there's pastiche like the matrix immediately appeared in french and saunders um and shrek <laughs> and and so on but this was not that it wasn't like hey look what we're doing it was this is cool right kid it was, yeah. it was how are you doing my fellow comic book nerds <laughs> it was it was the nakedest thing um it it didn't make sense but they did it because of the matrix and because of the x-men trying to be like the matrix this was like the the fulcrum awful mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah it, it was that thing of like well this is what cool looks like now mm -hmm. and what cool looks like is extremely goth and like extremely goth yeah i um as someone who had like just got into the Sandman around about the time that the Matrix came out, it was really annoying that all of a sudden the name Morpheus got heavily associated <laughs> with the Matrix and wearing a long black coat got heavily associated with the Matrix. And I had got a long black coat to wear to school that I wanted because I'd just read the Sandman. And instead, <laughs> oh, no. everyone thought I'd got it because of the Matrix. That's so sad. And I liked the Matrix, but I think I started not liking the Matrix for a while mm -hmm. because everyone assumed that I liked the Matrix. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, there are things in the Matrix that come so nakedly from Sandman that I didn't, I really didn't clock them at the time because I hadn't seen, yeah, I hadn't read Sandman, read Sandman at the time. Um, Let's talk about them. Like what? The the thing that I find most sort of obviously, aside from the use of the name Morpheus, is the character of Switch, who is a sort of androgynous uh, person who dresses entirely in white when everyone else dresses in black, and I look at that character and go. This is literally just desire of the endless. Um, there are there are several shots in the film. Like there's one specifically where they all go. It's where they go into the matrix to see the oracle, and it's the first time they've all gone back in together. And there's like a big group shot of them having just arrived, and they're all posing, and it looks so much like a family shot of the endless. I it just can't be unintentional. Do I, do any of the others actually line up or uh... do they line up? <sighs> I mean, whether they line up exactly, <laughs> I'm not sure I can make that case. I've just seen a note, actually, which I'd never seen before. Which I mean, I say, after having always had that annoyance of, oh, Morpheus, you know, Morpheus is now a character in The Matrix and people don't know, you know, that it's a character from Sandman. Um, apparently, Lawrence Fishburne was told, was given Sandman books and told that he should be played like Morpheus. <laughs> this was told to Neil Gaiman by Jeanette Kahn. Um, oh no, it was an article that was forwarded to him, Jeanette Kahn. He, Jeanette Kahn, Lawrence Fishburne had met Jeanette Kahn and she gave him Sandman books. Um, and then he was cast in The Matrix and then he was told by the Wachowskis that he should play it like Morpheus. 
Which is weird because I don't see that character as bearing any resemblance to Morpheus from the Sandman. I always just thought it's a coincidence that you know these characters. <laughs> well, yeah, have the they're, same they're name. both leaning on the same mythology, but yeah, but personality-wise, you know, other than actually, I was going to say other than stoicism, but I, but I don't think Morpheus in the Matrix is a particularly stoic. He's character. ineffable, mm. I suppose, because they they do not look alike. Um, playing it similarly would produce a new effect. Mm-hmm. Fair. Like if you meet someone and they act like someone you know, but they don't look like someone you know, they'll seem like a different person to both mm. each halves of them, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one one way in which there is a similarity is that in both cases, the characters are sort of introduced to you as being this very sort of, I mean, yeah, ineffable is a good word, certainly, and sort of, um, you know, a character who's, who is kind of at the top of things and in control of things. And obviously the whole point about Morpheus at the start of The Matrix is he's the mysterious guy who knows everything that's going on and he's the fearless leader and this, that and the other. And one of the things that's enjoyable about him in the film is that as the film goes on, you realise that he's actually a kind of deranged zealot um, and deeply <laughs> flawed and it's a, you know you do get a similar thing in sandman in terms of yeah. the layers of morpheus yeah. in the sandman you know actually he is a far more irrational and emotional character than he'd ever let himself admit to being and and that's you know what ultimately causes his his realization in the series that he's changed far more than than he'd ever allowed himself to i suppose there's also a similarity in their um, apparent authority um, because morpheus in the first film appears to be you know king knowledge he's mm. the highest guy they've got which is also the case for morpheus in the sandman he's a god like he's introduced he's a god so the reader's like okay he must be super in charge um and as as it continues well even even gods blah blah whatever you know neil gaiman um (laughs) and i don't know if we're going to talk about the sequels probably not but you're welcome to, because I don't think we'll ever cover them as individual films on the podcast. I don't know that I have anything special to say about them, but um, apart from the fact that Morpheus's apparent authority, well, it both wanes and um, remains, but it, it certainly does take something of a beating, even though he's right in the end. <laughs> I mean, that's a, just purely based on this film, something I found interesting on this rewatch was that there was a little nagging thing in the back of my mind where I was like, is he right? Mm. And like, aside from the fact that he goes and kills everybody, (laughs) is there an extent to which you sympathise with Cypher? Sure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the bit where he kills people is where you you sort of get off, (laughs) you know, get off that train. Mm. It was kind of, um, I mean, I, I said that I was big into the Matrix and then I got out of it, but that that's kind of how it happened. I started thinking, well, like, what makes Neo and all that right? Like, they're mm. murdering a lot of people um, because they, like, because why? Um, like, the security guards, maybe they're programs, but I don't think they are. I think they're just people who are no, also yeah, in the yeah. Matrix. I think, I think they're definitely people. So, what? what's so good about that? Um, and why would you want to get out of the Matrix anyway? Like, sure, your flat's crap, but <laughs> they live in a fucking cave. <laughs> Do you really want to go? And it's it's that question of consent, isn't it? Because it's you, you have the whole thing of, you know, and, and again, Cypher says it, you know, he offers people the choice between yeah. learning the truth 
but you don't know what the truth is until you learn it. Yeah. And there's no option to unlearn the truth. And actually what it should be is, here's what the truth is. Now, do you want to carry on knowing it or do you want to go back to blissful ignorance? Yeah, um, yeah. In a, in a sense, once lost can never be regained. An interesting thing about um, The Matrix is that they did a bunch of spin-offs in between the first two movies. Um, they did The Animatrix, which is quite popular mm-hmm. and also very good. They also did a bunch of comics. And one of those comics um, is about someone who took the the other pill. Blue. <laughs> I've forgotten which way around it is. But it, it's sort of like they return to their life having had the opportunity to learn the truth and not taking it. And it's a really interesting sort of vignette about what that might do to you. Mm. Come to think of it, um, in about 2003, 4-ish, there was a big surge in, or I don't know if it was big, but it was a surge in fan fiction, the Matrix fan fiction, but also X-Men movies fan fiction, if you see what I mean. So the concept was, what if the people in the X-Men movies were woken up out of the Matrix and <laughs> their mutant powers were glitches. Um, and it was that people were enjoying, you know, thinking about which characters would go and which would stay. And um, it was very widely agreed, I think, that um, this might just be my memory, but it seemed that way, um, that Magneto, for example, would want to stay in the Matrix. He would want to forget that there was an option because of his identity being so um, mixed up in being a mutant. And if you take mm-hmm. that away, then then who is he? And that was compelling to me. Um, like, why, why would, why is the assumption that the hero must, that the heroic thing to do is escape? Like, what does it gain anyone, really? It's, it's like, it's individualistic, really, isn't it? It's not, it's not a savior story, even though he's Neo the, the savior. Mm. it's about neo's choices rather than his impact really like in a in a much greater sense it's a story about what do you personally specifically you want to do everybody surely agrees with that because you're the hero which very true is you know that that's sympathetic enough especially coming from some trans creators but um not every audience member has the same position regarding of course you're right, you're the hero, as Lily and Lana, or as a lot of the other people in the audience. So it's a tricky one, I think. And I think I think the subsequent movies do kind of interrogate that a, a little more. Yeah. I mean, there there is still this sort of default assumption that the machines are bad and must be defeated, but you know, the way the way the series ends is on a much more ambiguous like, well, we've come to some kind of truce. It is ambiguous, but I feel like it's ambiguous in the way that a shrug is ambiguous. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> it's not, it's fair to say it wasn't, you know, it, it kind of peters out rather than concludes, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, I don't think those movies are as good. No. <laughs> and, it, you know, we should say that this movie is good. Like, it's, it yeah. holds up even now. Yeah, it, as with all cyberpunk, there's a lot, that, a lot about it that's, that's dated um perhaps not as well because you know you can say movies are dated and what does that really mean but in terms of cyberpunk it's like you have there's this weird stuff at the start of the movie where people keep talking about their computers and they're they're really obsessed with (laughs) their like computers they're like oh some weird stuff came up on my computer like uh what's going on in my computer it's like yeah but maybe that was a thing in the 90s but now we don't have computers we have phones and tablets and (laughs) 
you know, it's just not a thing. So you know, well, you know what that means, don't you? <laughs> Go on. Time for a reboot. <laughs> I, I kind of would be there for it, you know. I feel like there's, especially given the impact that, you know, the whole red pill culture has subsequently had on pretty much all online discourse. I feel like there are, there's a lot you can say with a Matrix now that you'd never have dreamed of saying back then. Has it been talked about? It feels like something that like ha- has an actual idea of an actual reboot or sequel or whatever ever actually been on the table. This 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 is the kind of thing where we need Joe really. Oh no, yeah, it's it's always <laughs> it's buzzing around pop culture. I think personally, I wouldn't be interested in it unless Lana and Lily were doing it. And I I think their attitude is we don't care, but We've if someone else wants it, fair enough. Yeah. So. You know, I I don't know if Warner have have officially announced anything, but you've got to imagine there's a whiteboard somewhere with Matrix reboot question mark on it. <laughs> if they can bring back Men in Black, you know. Can they? I think it's been proven that they can't. They'd have to think of a way to make it an aesthetic experience again. You can't mm-hmm. just do the Matrix looking exactly like the Matrix. That's yeah. not the Matrix. <laughs> I mean, I'm... I would hope Warner have the same feeling. I suspect they won't. Well, yeah. Yeah. It, it feels like an inevitability that a Matrix reboot will happen at some point. Whether it will be any good or not is is debatable, and certainly whether it will be interesting or not is seems unlikely, given the things that made this one interesting. But I feel like I'd be in line to see it regardless, just to, just to find out. <laughs> I, I wanted to... Talk a little bit actually about some of the the spin off things uh, because again you know it's called when else will we get the opportunity and you've mentioned the comics a bit um, I mean what what was the sort of what was the setup there with the comics I mean I I know that they did some but um, I don't really know what was actually yeah so they did a lot of online comics uh, that were released on the Matrix website um, in the mostly in the time period between the first and second movie uh, they got quite a lot of very sort of trendy creators to do them uh ted mckeever did some paul chadwick did some uh neil gaiman wrote a prose story uh, that was later illustrated uh bill sinkevich did some stuff so it, they were really sort of interesting they were mostly like little self-contained stories of people in the matrix who weren't directly connected to these things and now you know to the main narrative um i'm trying to think who's uh peter bag did some wow okay yeah um <laughs> i mean when you said paul chadwick my ears pricked up but i'd be very interested to see what a peter bag matrix comment looked like yeah i would i would urge anyone anyone who's interested in comics and likes the matrix to go and have a look they did two volumes of them which cover most of the online release stuff but it's all out there somewhere uh it's really interesting like they're they're mostly mood pieces and sort of <sighs> again it goes back to their they're mostly interesting for their aesthetic rather than what they do with the narrative or anything like it's it's all you know it's one of it's probably one of the ways i got into a lot of indie comics creators because i didn't know these people at the time but certainly it, it broadened my horizons in that respect you know as someone who was only reading sort of x-men and x-men spin-offs at the time i suppose it would have to be mood stuff because otherwise what's the point um mm-hmm. because the matrix and the matrix reloaded and stuff they they're not really... I mean, it sounds a little funny to say, being that it's The Matrix, but they're not really concept-driven. They're just stories about Neo. Yeah, that, that the first movie is a pretty much boilerplate 
hero's journey stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Um. So there's not really any spare story to fill in. Mm-hmm. Like there, there, there's not. There are no holes. Like there, there are the other people in the crew, but if they were supposed to be interesting, they already would be. Um, <laughs> and most of them are dead by the end of the first film, anyway. So right. Um. I mean, I guess Tank and Dozer probably could fill a book because their lives are specifically very different to everyone else's. I guess that would that would be um an interesting option, but is that not what happened? Uh well, were they were they Tank and Dozer comics? Mm. I don't believe so. I'm trying to mm. think I, no, nothing springs to mind with them. I think the only ones that included the main characters were the ones that Lana and Lily wrote themselves and there mm. are couple of those possibly because mm. if we're talking about w- things that influence the matrix um we would have to mention neuromancer which mm-hmm. has a comic so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um because a, a lot of a lot of um matrix commentary tends to focus on like the neck plugs and ai and and so on but tank and dozer specifically are the, the the part of the matrix that made me think when i read neuromancer about 12 years later wow they really just ripped this off <laughs> um like in a way that most references in the movie don't make me think when i come across whatever inspired them um have you guys have you read neuromancer mm, no no <laughs> i'm trying to think okay I, no <laughs> um well you know you could do that. It's pretty good. Um, it's it is a, it is a little bit it is a little bit dated, but it it's it's still solid. Um, and it's interesting for its history. Is it is it pretty much like the cyberpunk uh, text? It is, but I don't think that from that knowledge you can predict what it will be like because I couldn't. Okay. Um, which isn't to say nobody could, but you know probably nobody could. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's the bulk of the story is not similar well i mean it, it's technically similar in that it's like people on the run and they've got augmented this that and there's you go into the computer and whatever but um tank and dozer in the matrix um the two guys who fly the nebuchadnezzar the ship um who aren't matrix babies they've never been in they don't have the plugs um and they're black which the majority of the cast are not morpheus is but he is um the only one of the Matrix present core cast mm-hmm. who is black, um, which sort of isolates him in a way um, and makes his position and the way that his blackness reads within the cast different to Tank and Dozer. Um, and in Neuromancer, when the main characters, I think they go to the moon for some reason. But anyway, um, living in space are a... Um, a community of space Rastafarian people because um, they um, abandoned Earth because it's too corrupt um, and their um, sat- I think it's a satellite community like they literally live in a satellite mm-hmm. um, and they their community is it's all built around Rastafarian belief system and culture and so on um, and they um, Molly and Case I think the guy's, the guy's name is um, they're helped by these two black spaceship driving guys from a different culture. Um, and it just, it reads, because like, also in Neuromancer as in the Matrix, there are no black main characters other than these people. So the, because of the like landscape of race within both stories and the way that that affects, um, the presence of these particular characters, they're very, very reminiscent of each other 
it really it's like it it feels different to the other references because it doesn't feel like a reference it feels like it just it feels like more of a copy than um mm-hmm. because with the fight scenes and so on being taken from Hong Kong cinema they they got a Hong Kong choreographer yeah. to make their movie as good as the movies that they watch but they didn't get they they just kind of took another white person's picture of black people in their story and reused it for their story mm-hmm. which feels different um it stands out in in a in a different way i don't remember the names of those two characters i did look them up earlier and i've gone and forgotten them but um they are an important part of neuromancer because they represent the wider world um and like the wider future and they're less i think they're they're less important maybe in the matrix which makes them even more interesting because they're here why are they here why do they care in in neuromancer it's clear why the guys are helping main characters because they're moved by the love of god they feel morally obliged to help them tank and dozer i don't really know it just seems like it's their job or something i don't know it, it's not as emotionally straightforward i feel like that that could use some working out that that is one of the one of the narrative's problems generally is that the the supporting cast who mostly get killed off in the sort of start of the third act you don't know a lot about them or what motivates them or who they are they're broadly just cool visuals mm. And in this case, some sort of vaguely interesting concept that's not going to be expanded until the next movie. Mm, yeah. Um, and that is certainly one of the weaknesses of The Matrix is that it only really cares about Neo and Trinity and Morpheus and everyone else is is almost literal fodder. Yes, there's there's a lot of dying and it, <laughs> it, I don't know that it all serves. Mm-hmm. I do think it's, it's weird the way um, Tank... You think he's being killed off, but then he survives, and then he's dead by the next film because they had a salary dispute with the actor. <laughs> well, he just, you know, he was very poorly when yeah, he got up again, <laughs> and that extra exertion was what finished him <laughs> off, I guess. Finished him <laughs> off, yeah. Yeah, he got um, he got roadied. That's a real yeah. shame. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was vaguely aware of that being a thing. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a shame, particularly given that he's uh, he is probably the one of the uh, ship bound characters that stands out the most. Probably because he gets the most to do aside from Cypher, mm-hmm. I think he saves the day. Yeah. Yeah. Since we're on the subject of influences, or, or we were when we were talking about Neuromancer. Um, are we going to talk about The Invisibles? <laughs> I've never read The Invisibles, so... <laughs> I have. I really like it. And I don't really understand why people make such a fuss of it being a Matrix influence, to be honest. Yeah, that's... See, I mean, I think part of the reason why people make a fuss about it is because Grant Morrison made a fuss about it. <laughs> you um, can't listen to him. And there is a quote from Grant Morrison <laughs> where he says... Uh, it's really simple. The truth of that one is that design staff on The Matrix were given Invisibles collections and told to make the movie look like my books. This is a report... I'm not doing a, a Scottish accent, by the way. This is a reported fact. The Bukowskis are comic book creators and fans and were fans of my work, so it's hardly surprising. I was even contacted before the first movie was released and asked if I would contribute a story to the website. It's not some baffling coincidence that so much of The Matrix is plot by plot, detail by detail, image by image, lifted from Invisibles, so there shouldn't be much controversy. The Bukowskis nick the Invisibles, and everyone in the know is well aware of this fact, but of course they're unlikely to come out and say it. He then goes on to talk about how uh, he's fine with it for the first film but for the second and third film they went off in a completely different direction and they should have carried on stealing from him Um, I mean there are similarities there are definitely 
I mean, I've no doubt that it's something that they had read and were fans of, and in much the yeah. same way as, as Lawrence Fishburne, uh, you know, talked about being given copies of Sandman. Um, I can I can understand it being a, a visual reference, but only only as part of the mix with a lot of other things. Because yeah. yes, you know, The Invisibles is a story about ordinary person gets shown that the world is a lie and joins a group of counterculture people who are fighting against the oppressive group that are essentially keeping humanity you know hidden under a veil kind of thing i mean there there are and there are little there are individual things like maybe like names of things that are an influence but again you know you've got things like morpheus coming from elsewhere i don't see it as direct like when to hear grant morrison talk about it if you hadn't read the invisibles you would assume that it was much more direct yeah you would but i certainly don't think aesthetically no, that's just rubbish, um, it isn't it? anything to the Invisibles. There's like a couple of scenes where someone wears bondage gear. Is that it? It's not really good enough. Yeah, and there's a there is a you know kind of an, an androgynous looking trans character. Um, there is a thing about well, the, but yeah, but, like but Lord, I mean, they don't Lord they don't Fanny look alike doesn't at look all. a thing yeah, like Switch. Exactly. That's what I mean, but but that's that's a point of comparison that I've seen made, and even you know it feels like reaching um, the blue pill red pill thing. There is like a blue blue like fungus thing that's the sort of, but again it's it's blue rather. You know, blue is the is the reality is the 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 false reality in Matrix. So I don't know. It's I, I think it, there are things you can see if you look for them, but I yeah. think that direct thing of oh the Matrix is just the Invisibles. Um, feels like it's only really had traction because Grant Morrison has said it himself yeah. so outspokenly. And I feel like you could just you could say that about the Invisibles. So mm-hmm. cram it, Grant. <laughs> <laughs> like he didn't make up Barbalith. He got that from somewhere else. He didn't make up the idea of someone taking a long fall and it changing them. He got that from somewhere else. They like they are, they coexist culturally. They have one feeds the other, sure, because that's how communication works. <laughs> but that's not stealing. It's just not. The thing the Matrix stole from the Invisibles is that it became incomprehensible by the third act. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Invisibles became incomprehensible a bit earlier. Than yeah, that. I read. I, I actually I read the first yeah. volume, and by the second, I was like, I don't understand what's going on anymore. <laughs> oh, you lightweight. Um, <laughs> no, if you want an example of, well, another example of. Um, the Matrix totally lifting something from a comic. I'll tell you where you can go. You can go to Magnus Robot Fighter number 21 from <laughs> Valiant Comics. You'll have to look for it because... Um, this is a Valiant comic, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because the license is no longer with I Valiant, so it's not in print. I can't you found a way to get Valiant oh, hell yeah. on this podcast, Claire. <laughs> I, was, I specifically <laughs> didn't ask about Valiant earlier on. I'm a goddamn professional. <laughs> um, yeah, Magnus Robot Fighter 21, written by John Ostrander. Um, penciled by James Brock. Um, you've got some evil robots with a very matrixy sort of aesthetic taking over, um, or they take over an asylum and they put all the people they want in some glowy red pods hooked up to a bunch of, you know, robot y looking stuff. And the people that they don't want, they recycle into a sort of mushy goo so that they can <laughs> feed the people in the pods with that matter. And the people in the pods, um, their thoughts are used to generate power for the robots. Um, <laughs> case closed, Julian. But do you ever hear John Ostrander complaining about the Matrix? I don't think you do, no. 
I mean, the see for me when I when I watch The Matrix and when I watch it back now, the thing, the influence that always jumps out at me is Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> I was about to say, right, the thing, well, how I was going to cover off the Invisibles discussion was, was I was going to say, if you're a fan of the Invisibles, you'll probably look at The Matrix and go, this is completely a ripoff of the Invisibles. But equally, you'll see people who are fans of Ghost in the, in the Shell talking about how it's completely <laughs> a ripoff of Ghost in the Shell. I'm both of those, and it's not a ripoff of either. That's rubbish. I, in this case, I'm not talking ripoff conceptually there are bits of the matrix specifically the action scenes which lift frames and sort of sections of action from the from the anime of ghost in the shell like beyond beyond reference well i mean so does the ghost in the shell movie and that's a lot worse (laughs) yeah it goes without saying that the matrix is a is a better ghost in the shell adaptation than the ghost in the shell adaptation yeah it, it does have those little um what would you call them Flourishes. Choreography <laughs> borrowings. Um, you know, what do you call it when it's samples? Choreography samples. samples. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you'll see, like, that, you know, The Matrix didn't invent that kind of stuff. Like, actually, I can't remember when Naruto is from. It's probably after The Matrix, but other stuff does it too. Like, you see, you'll see gifs of Naruto fights and they're actually Bruce Lee fights. You'll see gifs of whatever anime and it's actually from some live action movie so the matrix doing its anime you know it's like that's the circle of life yeah and you know i don't mean to denigrate the matrix for having done that because as you know as we've already agreed it wears its influences broadly on its sleeve and it it does right by them Mm. but yeah I i was just gonna say like if if i was to pick the one thing that it references most heavily that's what it would be for me well i think i mean i think yeah i think that's factual like they showed the movie to whatever producer and were like, we want to do one of these, but with real people. And and they did. Um, and they did it well enough that you can watch both movies and not feel like you've watched the same movie twice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is there anything you think that The Matrix actually adds, kind of, that that's its own? So, of you know, aside from being this kind of mixture of influences and other things and and aside from as i say just that kind of almost the surface level kind of vernacular stuff in terms in in terms of what it's doing and what it's saying what what's its own that's a very good question yeah it's a hard question you know for for me the thing that i when when i rewatched the movie it was the first time i'd seen it in the cinema and i came away thinking like considering like the thing i didn't grasp at the time possibly was I a bit too young? 17, maybe. I don't know, it was quite naive, 17-year-old. Uh, I came away thinking, like, this, considering it came out in the late 90s, it's a surprisingly queer action movie. Mm. Um, that's not something many people followed up on. Uh, I think probably the Matrix sequels did, but... And their later movies did. Well, yeah, quite. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Jupiter Ascending. Exactly. So, yeah, I think making that mainstream, I think, is something that a lot of people have or would have overlooked at the time and yet now you look back at it and go like wow in comparison to what was going on at the time it's you know that's pretty revolutionary and the fact that they weren't out as trans at the time and now are Mm. certainly gives you something to look back on and go like oh actually you can see how this is a sort of coming out movie but at the time i don't think people really had an inkling of it you could probably i mean in the future people will probably trace a line from the matrix to um what was that movie called the one where everyone was like look at all this bisexual lighting and then the lead also was bisexual uh, that woman action movie you know the one 
Atomic Blonde? Yes, that one. Yeah. And um, John Wick 3 with yep. the non-binary villain. Mm-hmm. That will probably be um, the historic. Yeah, yeah I think you're right, actually. That hadn't um, certainly hadn't occurred to me, but now that you say it, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, they gave lines to the T-1000, which is cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> people, you know, people... It's still fun to say Mr. Anderson, isn't it? Like, it <laughs> the the speech he nice. gives where he's like, I feel infected by it. <laughs> when that was happening on, on screen, I was so happy. I was like, ah, oh, this is such a performance. <laughs> I find it hard to watch without thinking of Mark Gatiss and Kevin Eldon in that spaced episode that <laughs> that I think I think ran the joke into the ground a bit too soon after the release of the film, but yeah, but yeah, I think you know, giving <laughs> giving lines to the sort of emotionless robot villain, definitely good idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't think I, I, Hugo Weaving certainly never has never looked like he's having as much fun as he. Like, <laughs> <in this. laughs> yes, that could be true. <laughs> yeah, he may never have actually had that much fun again. Yeah. <laughs> so we, uh, we we we've got through all of this discussion of the film, I think, without talking about how it relates to us covering it on the podcast i mean we've talked a lot about comics influences but it's not directly based on a comic um and i think part of our justification for covering it other than that you know just we wanted to we thought it'd be interesting to do and it's you know the anniversary year with the re-release um there is that question and potentially that debate or argument although i'm not sure if it's much of one over whether or not the matrix is a superhero film so this could be a really short conversation but is The Matrix a superhero film? I'd like to hear from Claire first. <laughs> um, no, it's not. Ooh. Okay, maybe it's a longer conversation than I thought it would be. <laughs> Why is that? Do you think it is? Yeah. Why? Because, well, okay, James, go on, you can do it. Okay, so aside from the thing we've talked about, we have the sort of uh, hero's journey narrative. So mm-hmm. it's it's obviously a hero story. Mm-hmm. Neo quite literally has superpowers in the Matrix. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's a super user of the Matrix and he ends the movie by flying and he's got a costume and a code name. What more What more superhero do you need other than perhaps, you know, a logo? Well, um, okay. What I would need is superheroism and for the superpowers to be real, not video game powers that he wants to escape it is later i mean this is nitpicking and i don't know if we can technically use something that happens outside of the first movie to support (laughs) the conclusion he does he can control sentinels when he's not in the matrix it's never really explained how magic is probably the answer magic or wi-fi but he does do it can yeah but like i don't think that counts as superheroism because it's because it's so, um, I mean, technically, you can say technically it is a superpower and he uses it to save people, but it's so different from the usual structure of a superhero story. And it's also so um, otherwise different, if you see what I mean, um, that it doesn't register as functionally similar to me. Um, and yeah, you know, that's not in the matrix is it (laughs) i mean my my feeling would be that it's like technically neo as in the literal actual character that exists is not a superhero 
and the literal actual story of the Matrix and the characters that we follow is not a superhero story. But I do think that everything that takes place when they are actually in the Matrix is absolutely 100% a superhero movie. And so essentially, The Matrix is a movie about a guy playing a superhero video game. <laughs> but like in The Matrix, all the stuff you said, James, and that, that's, that's how I've always viewed it, viewed it, is yeah, you know, he's he's got a secret identity, he's got a mild-mannered, boring job, he's got an alter ego with a code name, he wears a costume, he has powers, he discovers that he has powers, he, he undergoes a superhero origin story over the course of it. It just so happens that none of it is actually real. But I, I think th- I think the tropes are there. From a genre point of view, I think the tropes are there. Here's a trope that's not there. He doesn't save anyone. Ooh, he, does... he doesn't give a shit about anyone except his best friends. He's that not is, a superhero. It... He's a super person. Yeah, it's true that, <laughs> that Neo generally does not have any sort of self-sacrifice or selflessness to him. He's just... He's been told he's super Jesus, so he goes, I guess I'm super Jesus then. Time to start I mean, I could tell you a bunch of superhero movies that are like that as well. Yes. (laughs) His big climactic um, action set piece, saving Morpheus, um, saving one person. He murders people to do that. (laughs) Mm. So Um, he's the Punisher. Well, even the Punisher is doing it for other people. Neo is doing it for himself. So Neo is worse than <laughs> Neo, the Punisher. Yeah. That's what. You're well, telling. yeah, he is. Um, like, like I was saying before, it's 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 not a hero story. It's an individualism story, um, and the super nature of that is present. But I think that makes it different to a superhero story because he's not a hero. He's just the protagonist. That is a strong argument. I've got to admit. <laughs> <laughs> It, I think we can maybe say it uses a lot of the tropes of superhero fiction and maybe it's not a story about a superhero. So so what, what I'm getting from this is that we've chosen to cover The Matrix because it's a superhero movie that's heavily inspired <laughs> by a comic. And what we're saying is it's not a superhero movie and it wasn't heavily inspired by that comic. Well, it was heavily inspired by the comic Magnus Robot Fighter number 21. Okay, there you go. It's based on a Valiant comic. That's why we've covered it. Brilliant. <laughs> Don't think any of us are expecting it to go that way. No. (laughs) Well, on that note, and having had all of uh, my preconceptions and illusions about the film shattered, uh, we should probably... Well, let's move on to... I mean, okay, we've discussed comics. Do we... Do do you have any comics recommendations relevant to this, or should we just say Magnus Robot Fighter and possibly The Invisibles? It is a good comic. Like, Magnus Robot Fighter is a good comic. (laughs) I mean, to be fair... Actually, when you said it was written by John Ostrander, I was like, oh, okay. Um, well, see, the thing is, okay, so number 21 is the first issue written by John Ostrander. Prior to that, it was written, I think, almost entirely by Jim Shooter, um, which is something <laughs> in its favor. He is a very good writer. Um, and actually, in terms of comparing it to The Matrix, it does have a trans robot in it um, in those first 20 episodes, issues rather. Um, so I'm almost not surprised that it was a title that appealed to the Wachowskis. Um, like it, it does go into the same kind of concept and issue as their movies and their other works. Um, see, I'll tell you about Magnus Robot Fighter, shall I? (laughs) Since it is actually quite relevant. 
Yes, yes. Um, this is absolutely. the section okay. in which to do that. So okay, so do. Magnus Robot Fighter was a 60s property, um, a 60s comic that ran for um, till the 80s, I think. Um, every week, you know, it was it was that kind of comic. It was serial. It was Biff, Pow, how dare you, Doctor Science? You've made this evil robot. Um, Magnus <laughs> lived in the future, um, four thousand, the year four thousand, something like that. Um, and he was raised, he's a human, he's raised by a robot, um, because in the future, everyone uh, uses robots to do all their crap jobs, you know. Um, but 1A, his robot dad, um, is a rare robot who has gained free will, um, which is one word, by the way. Um, he can think <laughs> for himself, you know, he's he's got a, a human brain, metaphorically. And he is worried that other free will robots will endanger humanity so he raises magnus to be the toughest guy ever so he can punch the robots and stop them when he needs to <laughs> um and when the valiant universe was created in 1991 um valiant licensed three old comic characters like that to build the universe around and magnus was one of them um so they it's a very interesting very careful reboot adaptation it's it it purports to be in the same continuity as those original 60s comics um and it it's honestly it's it's really creative it's really good um they keep magnus in his same costume which happens to be a bright red mini dress um with gigantic armpit holes he looks <laughs> very cute they keep the idea of the um robot servant future and the rare free will robots who cause trouble but um they think about it with clear political eyes um and magnus starts to realize that there's really no reason why free, free will robots should be fought um they're just people and maybe they have a point about how robots shouldn't be controlled all the time and have to do all the crap jobs and Maybe it's not automatically right for human people to be able to push robots around. You know, very Matrixy type stuff, frankly. Um, the the Animatrix sections about the development of robot AI rights, very similar. Mm -hmm. um, so Magnus Robot Fighter becomes Magnus Fighter for Robot Rights, and that gets him in all kinds of political trouble. And his girlfriend from the old comics decides she doesn't understand, and then she does understand. They break up, but they both still believe in robot rights. So they both go into different areas of protection of robots. She goes into politics. He goes into um, he moves down to Goflev, which is um, I'm sure because this is the kind of 60s sci-fi that like spread everywhere. You'll probably recognize the idea of the shiny. Robots served rich people live in the high up wonderful towers and the post-apocalyptic looking rough punk crap people who don't have any robots live on the ground level and just try and get along and talk rougher and stuff. Magnus goes to live down there and find out what it's like when you don't rely on robots, things like that. Um, and one of his supporting characters is, um, I have forgotten her name, but um, there is a serving robot in a restaurant who the visual language of the comic, um, which is the mainstream, like middle of the road visual language of gendering of person-shaped objects, tells you this is a waiter, not a waitress. This is a neutral male Rob, because they call them Robs, not robots. Um, <laughs> but then this robot gains free will sentience and um, part of her expression of liberation 
is the use of that same visual language, that same recognizable middle of the road object gender um like communicative array is that she will look in a way she will look a way that allows the average person to understand that she is a woman she's a female robot so she Mm -hmm. completely changes how she looks when she gains her freedom and it's it's they don't use the word transgender or trans but it is a part of the text that um expression of self has that amongst its many options it's like it's it's right there and she's a a very prominent character she remains in the comic um it's interesting stuff it really is that's a big theme for the early 90s as well especially in comics yeah yeah then there's there's another character who she's very plain spoken about her bisexuality she like and not it's not a joke. It's not like a fun haha. It's just actually a number. Well, actually two um, of Valiant's like core masculine titles. Um, those heroes being like in their core books, the like they are viewed through a queer lens within their own texts. They have these like textually queer characters as their primary support cast and that is like a part of their very basic makeup that they are not just like they do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like it's 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 different to if those characters weren't there it makes it makes the main character feel different somehow i mean i've I've previously been quite sarcastic about Valiant Comics on the podcast, but this makes me really interested in going and reading Magnus. <laughs> yeah, Wayne see, fighting. like, like Exo Manowar, number one, you, he sounds like the premise is a Visigoth barbarian from 400 AD <laughs> gets kidnapped by aliens, is in cryosleep for ages, and now in the present day um, has um, an alien exosuit. He's like Conan in the Iron Man armor. Um, and that sounds so macho and so stupid. But um, his one supporting character that's on his side, his one friend, his one like the only other regular character, um, is this this gay man called Ken. And the first issue of EXO finishes with the last panel is narrated by Ken talking about how Arik is like a big comforting, growling dog, and Arik's naked, and it's. Like, it does not allow you to not see the character through that lens, which I find very unusual and very satisfying. I mean, it would be unusual for comics now to do that. Exactly, exactly. I'm I, I'm amazed at getting a recommendation section where somebody's talking passionately at length about a comic, and it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. Glad to serve. I mean, if, the, if that doesn't persuade you to read a Valiant comic, then... Uh... Nothing ever will. Do you remember the old style minisodes, James, where like Joe would have to report back on what he'd been recommended? Mm-hmm. Um, I, f- I feel like we should we should go away and read this and then do a report back on it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm up for it if you are. Uh, well, James, unless you've got anything to add to that recommendations wise, I think. Uh, <laughs> no, I just I want to reiterate: go and read those Matrix comics because. It's sort of like the Animatrix, the spin-off stuff is actually in a way a lot more interesting in that it's more concept-driven um, and has a sort of range of moods in a way that the movies 
don't. And I don't know if it was just at the time because like the, you know, the Matrix universe was like pregnant with these ideas that the sequel sort of shut down quite definitively. You know, it's funny that you say that because I was just the other day, I learnt where the word matrix comes from, like the etymology. Do you know it? Mm, I don't believe so. So please enlighten us. It means womb. Okay. So being pregnant with possibilities is just, it's perfect, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's almost a shame that they, they did that third movie and then let it go. I mean, I'm not really including the sort of online game that they did. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, you can sort of imagine a world of stories told within this universe that don't necessarily have to have, you know, the the protagonist in or don't have to follow the main narrative. It just, it could have been so interesting. And if it wouldn't, you know, they can't necessarily give their IP away. But if they had said, like, hey, you're free to well, do stories. rich and, enough. <laughs> uh, quite. <laughs> rich off the Jupiter ascending money. Um <laughs> it just feels like it would have been a nice gift if they'd gone, hey, feel free to do Matrix stories as long as they're not, you know, actively insulting us. We're we're fine with it. But, mm. you know, for now, those comics exist and the Animatrix exist. And those are the things that when I look back on the Matrix, I'm I'm sort of most funnily inclined towards those short stories set in that world as things that existed for a short time and were perfect. Well, in, in that case, I think you will like Neuromancer. Okay. Because it does um, that idea of a world that exists in the shared subconscious, mm-hmm. technically. Um, that's very much a present part. I mean, I was going to say, you know, there's, there's always zines. Um, but thinking about it, like, there's really nothing... Because The Matrix has so many clear references, there's really nothing in that core concept that you can't just also do in your creator-owned project true it, it really is ripe for the picking it's a it's a good lesson to take <laughs> i'm gonna read neuromancer i'm just look i'm i'm gonna grab ebook edition going on holiday tomorrow nice. i'm gonna uh yeah give that a crack but let's go on then to our final section which is the pitch and should be a relatively quick one this week. Um, and we discussed early whether it was unfair to to give it to a guest without preparation, but we're here now. <laughs> I'm so well odd, me. <laughs> so, in the Matrix, you've got... And I'm going to give you a list of people okay. here and see what they have all got in common. Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, <laughs> Hugo Weaving, Joe Pantoliano. I don't know who that last guy is. Oh, he's Cypher. Right. <laughs> um, all of the main characters, I guess Tank is kind of borderline, but all of the main characters in The Matrix, their actors have been in the MCU, apart from Keanu Reeves. We know it's going to happen eventually. Where are you going to put him? God. What Marvel character can Keanu Reeves play? And James, to give Claire our guest time to think about it, I'll come to you first. I think I must have said this on the podcast before because I talk about it all the time, but I always want to see Keanu Reeves uh, being Nightmare. I think we literally talked about it last week. Yeah, when we quite. About Doctor Strange. Yeah, <laughs> I stand. I stand by that. It, yeah, we don't get to see Keanu as a villain enough, so that will be fun. He's definitely got that kind of gaming esque frame because you know Nightmare and Dream are essentially the same character, right? Just. <laughs> Dreams less obviously malevolent. There is a parallel universe where he did a Sandman movie in the 90s, definitely. Yeah, and there's also a parallel universe where Marvel said no to, uh, where DC said no to Sandman and Neil Gaiman reworked as a nightmare pitch for Marvel. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if I was going to put him anywhere, I think that would be good. Um, facing off Benedict Cumberbatch, I guess that would have to happen, but 
you know, it's it's Keanu Reeves. He can he can make anything work, right? <laughs> Claire, how about you? Well, it's a little bit tricky, but well, since they have the X Men now, um, I think he would have to be uh, Corsair. Scott Summer's hot dad. <laughs> See, just as you started to say X Men, I was like, "Yeah, he could be Cyclops, couldn't he?" But no, that's no, better. No. <laughs> I'd like to see him with the handlebar moustache. Yeah, I think that he could pull it off. Um, yeah, of course, as you know, he's cool, he's exciting, he's not there much, um, <laughs> and he, no matter who is playing Cyclops, he will look like a bit of a whelp. Against Keanu Reeves, which is appropriate. <laughs> um, my my thought that I've been thinking recently is that I'd really like to see him as Damon Hellstrom basically played as he played John Constantine. Like, because I really like that version of John Constantine, even though it isn't remotely John Constantine, and a Damon Hellstrom who is basically an L.A. noir style guy going around battling against demons while being resentful of the fact that he is one um i could see that so that is my pick but i'm not allowed to pick myself to win um I'm <laughs> i not think just you guys doing... are forgetting that keanu reeves is a little bit old <laughs> have you not seen the pictures from bill and ted 3 he's not that old he he he's still you know he's still keanu reeves <laughs> but he is a little bit old damon hellstrom goes around shirtless yeah yes um and has like you know perky hair and marriage drama (laughs) keanu reeves is is too relaxed for that now he's he's paid his dues he needs to rest he should be in space sitting down um and mostly cool in his absence (laughs) he deserves it he's given us enough this is way off topic but i love that Scott Lobdell X-Men issue where um, Cyclops and Corsair go camping and he's like, do you want to, do you want to light the fire, son? And he's like, light the fire? And he's like, with your heat vision. (laughs) He's just like, no, dad. Um, I will just say that it's not a great strategy if you want to, if you want to win on the pitch to then criticise the the decision of the person who's going to decide, the choice of the person who's going to decide. All I can be is honest. (laughs) Well, I am still going to give it to you. I'll I'll be honest too. And to be honest, it's mainly for the moustache. Main also because I just like to see James lose. But actually, no, that is genuinely as as an age appropriate and uh, a fun one, and also a character who I don't think anyone would actually think otherwise to bring in. So I think we need to get that. To be one completely on the table. fair, I would like to see Corsair as well. Him as Corsair. Exactly. Of all the men in all the roles, who can pull off a sweatband? <laughs> Keanu Reeves. Hundred percent. Sold. Solid. <laughs> uh, so there we go. That is a well, a fully successful uh, debut for you then, Claire, on the podcast. Uh, Thank you and, very much. Yeah, absolutely. If if we do ever find ourselves scraping the barrel so far <laughs> that we've got we've even got below Justice League ninety seven, mm-hmm. and we actually get as far as Mutant X, mm-hmm. then uh, yeah, we'll definitely have to give you a call back for that one. Um, would you like to tell the listeners where they can follow you, find you, find work by you? Um, well, they can for all handy options. They can go to clairenapier dot com and find everything really but um if they're extra desperate which they should be for really good <laughs> serial comic stories they can go to kickstarter and look for bun and tea it is a project we like so it will be quite easy um but i do encourage you to check us out and give us some money because we deserve it great well 
thanks once again for joining us. It's Thank been a you pleasure. for having me. Um, and thanks once again to all of you lot for listening. Um, you, if you're enjoying this, I'm going to try and do this without a script now. So yay! Uh, if you're enjoying <laughs> the show, you can find more episodes at cinematicuniverse.com. You can subscribe on Acast, Spotify, iTunes, any other podcast app. I mean, look, you guys know how this works now. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at cine underscore verse if you want to talk to us about the show. And, you know, we've been interacting a lot with people lately on here with stuff that you've suggested for us. So you can see that the system works. You can buy our T-shirts and designs and things at redbubble.com. You can support us, of course, at patreon.com slash cinematic universe, where you can hear the episodes ad free and occasionally early. Uh, thanks to our Patreon supporters, uh, Sean Loftus and Brendan Roberts. Yeah, so uh, we'll hopefully see you again for our next episode. Uh, the eagle-eyed among you might have noticed that this is episode 99. So our next episode, which also might, I think, be the last one before Joe goes off on paternity leave, uh, is going to be episode 100. We are still, actually, at the time of recording this, shouldn't tell you this, but we're still arguing over what we're actually going to do for episode 100. Uh, but it will be <laughs> something cool and special, hopefully, and not just a damp squib. Uh, so please tune in for that after I've given that amazingly good lead into it. And uh, we'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye. ta